Hey guys, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 19 of Couch in the Mind, Clearing the Mind One Couch Talk at a Time. On today's episode, I've got Aaron Stark, who's a mental health advocate, and he's also really well known for his TEDx speech in spring of 2018. Thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Uh, anytime, mate. I was just, I think, you know, I came across, as I mentioned to you before, I came across listening to all these different TED Talk speeches and as you, because I get really addicted to all these TED Talks and I start flicking through the next suggested one and your speech came up and, you know, I don't want to steal your thunder yet, but I just found it extremely inspirational and I know for a fact that so many people listening in that have an interest in mental health or maybe able to find relatability with what you've gone through and experienced, uh, they'll be able to gain so much. Well, thank you very much. So for those of you who haven't seen it, I was almost a school shooter. I grew up in a really, really violent house, drug addicted family. We moved around a whole lot. We bounced around from place to place, usually running from the authorities or running from social workers or getting evicted or however. But I went to like 40 different schools, well, uh, moved between moved, moved between Colorado and Oregon a lot and all the states in between. So we moved as seemingly every four or five months, we moved to a different different state. It was really violent, really chaotic. The first, the first four or five years of my life, I described like living like a Stephen King movie. That was like living with my birth father. He was wow. the most violent person I've ever known. He was a Vietnam vet before yeah. I was born. And by the time I was born, he was just a monster. I described that first five years as a really intense horror movies, like a, the, bad, the worst Stephen King movie you can think of. Then after that, my mom left him and got with my stepdad and it shifted yeah. to a uh, like Scarface more like a drug a drug kingpin movie lots of crack cocaine lots yeah. of crime lots of fighting and during that time i'm just a young kid five six seven years old and trying to adapt to all of that mm. and i was the cast off one my bro i had an older brother who was two years older than i was and yep. he had to basically assume the male the like the father figure of the house gotcha and I was the the one pushed off to the side. I was constantly told I was worthless, constantly told I was nothing. And after years of that and adapting that as my own personality, because when you tell someone that they're worthless enough, they will believe it. 100%. I grew into a really angry and violent teen who I, I describe it as wrapping the darkness of my life around me like a blanket and using it like a shield that as I grew older, I I, uh, I wanted to be the best worthless person. Yeah, you crave that positive reinforcement from somewhere, and if when you're living in that kind of hell, you you have to find some way to survive. And I did it by adapting that kind of dark, evil persona. The more and more, more for kind of for protection to keep the people away from me who were trying to come and fight me and hurt me. I was I was I was fighting all the time. I fought grown men constantly. My my we were basically my stepdad. We we fought fist fight all the time. Wow. Yeah, it was really intense. And then as I grew into a teen, that turned into me. I, had, I wrapped that dark persona around me and, and became, like I said, became the best dark person I possibly could. Do, do you find it's also because you're in that headspace, you're in, you're in competition with your own mindset because all you want is more negativity and you want, to keep fe- you want to keep feeding off that. You're not trying to find that you know metaphorical light at the end of the tunnel you want to just continue to build more and more with that. And I guess that kind of builds into the topic of today's episode, which is breaking that cycle and kind of trying to change that perspective and go, you know what, enough is enough. I really need to find those positives. Well, in, in a way, yeah, because the 
But I, the whole time, I at the heart was a really shy, sensitive kid. I was into comic books. I was into yep. poetry. I, I was into writing. And I was overweight. I was smelly. I was dirty. I, I, I didn't really have very many showers very often. And mm. I wore the same dirty clothes all the time. My living with crackhead parents didn't really help with having a clean uh, no, yeah. outfit all the time. But it was at, at the heart. I was I, my best friend at the time and throughout my whole life. My best friend, Mike, the one shining light in my life, basically. He always described me as a good kid in the shit world that I was at, at heart. I was always a good, shy, sweet kid, but I was really covered by all the dark hell that I was living in. Yeah, well, essentially, unfortunately for your scenario, you were dealt the bad hand and, you know, in that particular instance, because of being so young, you didn't know any different and it would have been so difficult to, as you said, if your family members and your closest closest friends, apart from Mike, weren't giving you that assistance and support that was necessary at the time, it's kind of like, you know, you're left scratching your head going, what am I supposed to do? That's when you try to adapt and become, if if everything I'm getting at me is telling me I'm worthless and I'm horrible, then I guess I'll be the best worthless, horrible person. Can I ask as well, because I know that bullying is, is so apparent in, in majority of schools all over the world, in particular if you're obese and you know, you, you're in a particular group. Why do you think as children, we have a tendency of doing that? Is it because we've got things going on externally in our life and we just feel like it's a good way of allowing us to vent it out into someone else i i think that it um as children we're trying to filter through the stimuli that are given to us by all of our by all of our surroundings we're basically you're you're up until you're about 13 or 14 you're you're a blank sponge you don't really have much agency in your world you don't really have control over where you're living what Mm. you're eating where you're what you're what you do for your day you more are at the the whims of the adults and the the power figures around you. And you're trying to figure out how to filter all that information and then become somebody and find who you are. At the heart, I believe is craving positive reinforcement. And if you are craving positive reinforcement, but the only place you're finding it is the negative places, then Mm. you'll be the best negative you can be. And that ties in with the bullying really heavily because when I was going from school to school, when I went, because I, like I said, like 40 different schools, so we bounced yeah. around a lot. When I would go to a, 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 any different, and pick a school that would have 10 kids that would be bullying me, picking on me, but I would also have a balance of it, okay? Because this yeah. was pre-internet days, where I would be a, have a balance, where there'd be six or seven kids on the other side would be nice trying to counteract that, okay? There'd always be a half and half. There'd be more bullies than nice kids usually, but there'd always be somebody to counteract that. Because that was an in-person where with where you'd have to face up to the social interactions in person. We have social media and we have all these subgroups and subcultures where if you're the bully, you're going to get rewarded for being the best bully. Then you're going to get tips on how to be an even better bully. Then yeah. you're going to get awarded for being the best bully possible. And so you're getting all the positive reinforcement you were craving from people saying you're good by being the best bad. And That's, so- yeah you fall heavily. It's so seductive to, to become, that's where you end up with these troll groups and you end up with troll subcultures and, and, and incels and the, the, the as, as the person matures, it ends up being the really toxic, really devastating ones like white nationalism. And, and, mm. and the, all of them are based on 
you can be good, but that person has to pay. Because we're we, I, I boil it down to we all just want to be held and told that we're okay. Absolutely. And yeah. If if the person telling you you're going to be be okay is telling you you're only going to be okay if that person pays for it, then you're going to make that person pay for it. I agree with you on that one, Aaron. And I think it's it's almost too easy to become a bully these days. But in particular, like when when you mentioned with social media, all it takes is someone to to post a negative comment on a photo, and you know it's it's there for everyone to see. And you know, it could be could be a simple emoji, all these sort of things. And as you said, it's super apparent. It's like competitive abuse. Yeah. Well, exactly. You you want more. You want to compete for that first position. Clout. You you want to get even even if even if all you're getting out of it is another kid who's in that same spot that you are trying to search for that positive reinforcement through the pain also absolutely telling you hey you did a good job being terrible and on the other side as well it's it is also super important that you you don't allow someone to sugarcoat the situation because you want to be able to tackle tackle it head on because if it's if you play the whole oh everything's going to be fine nothing's going to happen to you throughout your life you're not going to be accustomed to what's going to be presenting itself over time yeah, absolutely. I, I, I personally am, am an absolute believer in total honesty with stuff like that. I don't yeah. believe in sugarcoating anything. That's why when like, when the pre-interview, I said that there's no question off limits, because I really think that when you get down to it, being able to talk about these deep emotional topics openly mm. and honestly, there's such a stigma, especially with men talking about, like, I spent my mid-teenage years cutting myself, thinking I was that that was the only because that was the only part of my life that I could feel feeling. I, I was living in this like hurricane of pain, and this we I call it, I could call it like a tsunami, like this world of tsunami, this this just splashing me back and forth. And I was living it was yeah. like living in a movie that I wasn't a star of. Okay, and that being able to talk about that openly for some reason it's really taboo, especially among men that we, we have a really hard time opening up among, about that kind of stuff. It, it's so, it's really strange because it's, it's that stigma of if you do open up and express your inner emotions or whatever you're struggling with that were identified as weak. And it's kind of, you, you sit there and go, why is it that because I'm internalizing it and it's actually eating me away over time, you know, I, I, it's either I let that continue to grow, you know, allow that virus to grow and build up in my body or actually express it out, and then you just feel this weight lift off your shoulders, and and then instantly that stigma changes for you. Well, and and honestly, I think that I I have a small advantage of having done my TED talk, where now after that, I challenge any of those people that say talking about your emotion is weak to get up and do what I do one time, and and tell me that was weak, and 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 then afterwards, if you can say that was weak, then we can have a conversation. <laughs> It's so true though, Aaron, like it's it, people are easy to judge, but I think they're just jealous of what you were able to achieve. Well, and I don't even view it as jealousy at all. I, I, I actually think that, I think that those kids that are, that are say that, that it's the weak, they're just trying to fit the conformity of the mold for, for their own. Yeah. Yeah. That's a better way of putting it. Yeah, for sure. We're all trying to fit into the, to the pay, into the hole that we think our pig is going to slide into. You know, like mm. we, we all, there's the, you're a, a round peg in a square, we're in a square hole world. And well, well, I'm going to find a round hole then I'm going to figure out where <laughs> I'm going to fit. Exactly. And when we find that we're going to, again, we, we crave as, as people, we all, we just want to belong. We just, yeah. we just want to be part of, part of the yeah. family. Yeah. And we're going to find that somewhere. Yeah. Especially when the family at home or the family in school is unattentive and toxic. 
And the like when this when I would reach out to social workers, those times those times were the most toxic times in my life mm. because they weren't actually attentive. They weren't re- trying to listen to me. Mm. They just viewed me as th- it was as depersonalizing as the people looking at me as a monster when they were just looking at me like I was a project. When you when you went to seek help, professional help. Well, when there's the two main times was the time when that I talk about in my TED talk, where if I, when I was at the very, very bottom, I was in Mike's shed. I had been homeless for weeks, months at that time. I hadn't changed my socks. I actually hadn't wasn't even wearing socks for months. I hadn't changed my shoes. My feet were literally rotting off my body. I had been cutting myself so severely that I had giant cuts on my arms. I was in, living in Mike's shed in the in the his back of his house because it was sneaking me out food at night. It was the winter time. And I hadn't been home for weeks and months at that type point. I got to keep up saying weeks. It was months because I couldn't exist in, anymore with all the drunken, violent fighting and the, the crackhead. I couldn't do that anymore. Yep. And so I finally hit rock bottom where I'm sitting in this gray chair, this big puffy recliner chair in this shed. And the roof is like wood slats with gaps in it. So like holes in the roof. We can see through it all the way to the sky. And it's yep. pouring rain. And so rain's just pouring down on me and I am cutting myself so bad that there's a puddle, a pool of blood forming underneath me on the floor. And I think to myself, I got to get myself help. I'm at, I, if I don't get help somehow, I'm going to die. Mm. And I knew that in my life, occasionally uh, social workers had tried to intervene. They were the reason for us moving from place to place a couple of times. And so in the morning, I knocked on my friend's door and asked his mom for the phone book and called social services for myself. And I set up a meeting for that afternoon. And this was like six or seven in the morning. And I met it because it was like dawn. The meeting was three or four in the afternoon. And by the time I got there, they had also called my mom. And yeah. she was the most and still is the most practiced liar I've ever known. She got them to believe that I was making it all up that I was doing it all for attention, even though I produced a bloody razor blade, uh, fresh from cutting, sat on the the table and said, this was what I'm here for. And I had fresh cuts on my arms. Say, I'm at the very bottom. And they sent me home with my mom. And as they sent me home with her, she turned to me and she told me the next time I should do a better job and she'd buy the razor blades. And that sent me into the darkest time of of my life where for the next six months, I call it scorched earth, where I went through and was destroying all the the positive supports that I had built up in my world. Can I just backtrack it a little bit? Because when you were homeless at this time, you were between age 14 to 16. So you weren't very old. So you're still you're still developing still a young kid, still trying to get an understanding and grip of, of the world that we live in. And then you've gone through this process and your mother's told said this to you. Now, now you're going on to this sort of rage of destruction. And what what was the ultimate goal from that? Well, at that time, it was just to burn it all to the ground. The, I was, I was I, well, like I said, I was in what they call scorched earth. During that period, I went into, I snuck into every family member I could get a hold of, closets or photo albums, and destroyed every picture of me. I basically was annihilating my past from everybody. My, my brother found out what I was doing about three quarters of the way through and managed to save six or seven pictures of me. But other than that, I wiped out multiple family photo albums worth of my photos of pictures of me when I was a kid. I don't blame you, Aaron, because because of the whole process you've been through, you're only looking at the negatives and it's very, very difficult to find those positives and dig them up. 
and and understandably you you're just wanting to annihilate the past and try to make a positive future for yourself well at the time there was no positive at the time there was no no positive outlook i was trying to destroy every positive in my world like yeah. i went to mike and stole a ton of his comic books and destroyed them all Anybody that was a friend to me or was positive to me, I did my best to destroy and ruin that relationship and annihilate any possibility of having that in the in the future. And I, I got to the point after six months of that where I was completely alone. I was in the field behind Casa Bonita. If you ever watched the show South Park, they did a little episode on Casa Bonita. It was that restaurant that I was right behind there in this open field. And I had it was middle of the night and I was I was at the bottom again. And had been living for the last week on nothing but dumpster diving and free samples from the uh, from the grocery store wow. and sleeping in the field. And I was like, I, I got to do something. Last time I called social services and warned them I was coming, they called my mom in. So this time I'm not going to do any of that. So And I knew that across the street from the school that I was enrolled in was a place that said mental health. I didn't yep. know what it was. It just had a yep. sign that said mental health. And I talked to a social worker, I believe. I don't really remember much about the interaction. She was young. I believe she was inexperienced. The only thing I really remember hard about it is the last thing that she told me, which was, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do for you. I can't help you. When I walked out that door, and it was nighttime. It was like dark. So it was must have been seven, eight at night because it was already dark at night. I walked out that door and literally felt my brain just shatter. And... I, you know how I described earlier, I was living in that tsunami of pain and everything yeah. was like this big hurricane. I figured out what was underneath that. And when you go underneath the tsunami of pain, it gets really quiet and it gets really still because when you don't have anything left to live for and you don't have anything left to lose, then there's nothing that can really hurt you. Yeah, it's interesting because I actually... When, when I was listening to your TED talk, you were explaining that process and you're saying that if if you're not getting that support and, and you don't have any sense of purpose and being, that you're basically capable of anything and, and, and you don't really have any emotion of, of the after effect of what is to occur. Yeah. When you, when you have nothing to lose, you can do anything. And that's terrifying. Right then, I had the plan crystallized. During my homeless time that I had been living in for months, I was bouncing from place to place. I was never really alone. When you're a teenager, you're not super alone. Yeah. But I wasn't around friends. I was around what I call disaster groupies, okay, which were more like the, they were living vicariously through my damage. They were the ones who didn't have anything like me in their world. So they were, they would come and hang out with me when I was the, the, I was like a museum piece almost to them, like an animal in a cage. Gave them something to focus on, I guess. Yeah, I gave him something to focus on, like a TV show almost. Gotcha. And so when we were hanging out and hanging out with each other, instead of talking about like fantasy football or girls or sports, we'd talk about killing people. We'd talk about, well, if I were going to kill 10 people, how would I do it? And if you were going to kill 20 people, what would you do? And it would be like the fantasy football of the group. So when I walked out of that door and my brain shattered, I immediately knew what I was going to do. I had already fantasy footballed out the plan. So they were trying to they were trying to egg you on to do something. Did you oh, yeah. it was it was it was very it was Far very out. toxic. It was very yeah. toxic. It was not it was the accelerationist is, is the best word to put it. So I already knew the plan of what was gonna happen. I knew that I was either gonna go and kill the mall food court or my high school. And the only difference of the time would be with the time I got the gun of in the time of day. And I knew where to get a gun. 
because uh, there was gang. This was mid nineties. So mm. gangs were everywhere. Yeah. And there were gangbangers that hung out at the, the um, near the ROTC door to the, to the school. And they knew me because I was living like in the park. I was obviously the kids at school knew who I was. We didn't know each other by more than first name, but they had bought drugs for my family. Like they knew who I was. And yep. so, it, and I knew that they brought guns. They'd flashed them a bunch of times and like shown them off. So I just went up to him like, Hey, can I get a gun? Hopefully one that shoots a lot of bullets. Can I ask the whole process in itself, you know, thinking of doing this and almost implementing it. Was it, was it, was it, was it, was it more or less, from just trying to go from invisible to visible again so people can actually acknowledge you? The entire goal was to make my parents deal with creating a monster. Gotcha, yep. I I wanted to be the best monster I could. My parents were not on the target list. I was not going to attack them. I was going to make them deal with having made me. And, and what sort of, you know, obviously you're going onto this, this, this derailing road. What prevented you from jumping off that cliff? During that process, I, looking back on it now, I didn't look of it then. I didn't know what I was doing then. But looking back on it now, I think that I was going through the um, saying goodbye. You hear about people doing that where they, you go through and I was giving away my belongings. And I was, I think I was doing that process. And I went to Mike's house and Mike hadn't seen me in a couple weeks. He'd never knew the details about what I was planning, but he did know the details of the hell that I was living in. And the last time I had seen him, I think before that was the time in the shed. As soon as I opened the door, he saw that I was in obviously the worst spot that I had ever been in my, in my life. And he just brought me in. He didn't ask much. He just like, dude, you're going to, you're, that's when he kept on repeating. You're a good kid in the shed world man you're gonna be okay and he brought me in and he gave me a shower and he sat me down and gave me food and we talked about my family and he told me that i was gonna be okay and made me feel like i was a person and at the time it was like shining light into the darkest of depths in the world because i i i didn't feel human yeah and when you when you get when you feel like a person when you don't even feel human at all it will change your whole existence. From that moment, he became the most important lifesaver in my whole life. To this day, he's the best friend I've ever had. He's the uncle to my kids. We're in fact, just this weekend, we're planning on having a, a celebration. My oldest is turning 21. Wow. And we're going to go over and hang out with Uncle Mike for 21st. Yeah. So, yeah. No, honestly, man, like a, I... I am just like so proud of you for for what you've been through to where you are now. You know, all it took for yourself was just to get a little bit of positive reinforcement for one particular person. In this instance was your best mate, Mike, and that really changed your mindset. And I recall you saying this again on your TED Talks, and it really stood out to me was that the people that don't seem as if they need that positive reinforcement and the help are the people that need the help the most than anyone else. Yeah, we have to give the love to the ones that we feel deserve it the least. And I think that that, the feel deserve it the least is an important distinction. When you look at somebody and you think that, well, that person's too bad. That person's a troll. That person's evil. That person's wrong. That person's on the other political side. Let's let's say you're a Democrat looking at a Trump person thinking, oh, that's they're they're terrible. That's horrible. A liberal looking at a conservative or atheist looking at a religious or the other way around or however it is, if you're looking at the opposite of you. And you're thinking that person is terrible and that person is evil. Give that person the love. Give the one that you think doesn't deserve it. Give them more love. 
because it will help you as just as much as it helps them. We have to figure out a way to bridge this splitting divide in our society that is breaking us as a people beyond borders, beyond country, just splitting us. We need to figure out a way to break it, to bring us together. And I'm in full agreement with this. And and I guess in the most simplistic terms, I can I can kind of put this in is, say for example, you're just driving to work and and someone's swerving all over the place, or someone's sitting behind you, right up on the back of your car, and he's beeping, he's wanting to go quicker, and it's be so easy to you know to give him the rude finger outside of the car because you're agitated. What's this guy doing? But realistically they could be going through a whole world of pain. And I think it's a matter of actually having that understanding that before we act and just bring on more negativity, why not actually give them the support or just brush it aside and just continue on with the day? Well, I think I, to tie it back into the earlier topic, we were talking about the bullies, which I think is, is I think the bullies is the biggest, most visible outcropping recently with the social media of that split that we seem to be having. I agree. The competitive trolling, competitive bullying that seems to be going on, breaking down those barriers that regardless of your age, your religion, your creed, your race, your wealth, your political leanings, your social status, we all at the bottom of it feel that same sense of loneliness and and worthlessness. There's no difference in the pain that I was feeling in that shed and and the pain that a model feels before she's going to her shoot when she's throwing up in her car. There's no difference in that pain. The outside of it looks entirely different, but at the bottom, it's the sense of self-loathing and self-deprecation. And I think that's what we need to hit. It might be the only real bipartisan thing we have is that we all feel alone and worthless. But if we can realize that it does bond us together, then maybe we can see that there's more to us than the labels that we put on each other. Now, with your particular situation, having having gone through that process of, of now preventing yourself from um, from going to those drastic, you know, situate like that that drastic stance of, of wanting to start that school shooting, to now taking a bit of a step back and going, hang on, this is not the right thing. Mike's put me on the right track. I'm 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 feeling better. Things potentially could be upwards and onwards. I'd love to ask as well, you know, from there to where you are now. How did you start to to feel, you know, the the posi- the positives come to the forefront? And do you find as well that having a, a lovely family of your own that it actually did give you a bit of a sense of purpose and being? I definitely don't want to ever give the impression like it was some kind of light switch that got flipped and yeah. then all of a sudden Mike made me feel good and ding, I'm all better. And no, no. Not at all. That one couldn't be further from the truth. It was a um 10, 15 year process of self-realization of of acceptance with myself of there was the one of the biggest parts of the process was what i call it acknowledgement was where i went to the people that hurt me and acknowledged what happened but not in an accusatory way i didn't go to anybody saying you did this and you need to pay and this and you need to suffer for what happened it was much more that this is the reality of the situation and this is just the way it is yeah. And that getting that had nothing to do with their response. I didn't care what their response was, had to do with getting it off of my chest and making sure it was off of not, not being carried by me. And that was a very fundamental part of my, of my recovery. And after, and then yes, having my first child. So 
my wife has two older ones from her ex. I have one from my ex. And then we have a 10 year old together. So my oldest that I had from myself is now 15. He turns 15 on Sunday and his birth really did fundamentally give me that thing that I had that I that to fight for that I could never lose. And it opened my eyes and made me really pushed me to, to finish becoming the man that I needed to be instead of carrying on that baggage. Cause it's a long, hard process mm. to drop that kind of, um, to, to drop those kinds of, of defense mechanisms and those kinds of safety responses. When someone, even to this day, I, I find it occasionally, if I get super stressed out, I'll find, I'll find myself getting into that kind of the self-deprecating mode but it's a thousand times easier to fight these days because I have decades of toolbox to, that I've filled, you know, to be able to pull that out whenever I need to use to rectify the situations. So it's, it's a, it's a process. So it's definitely a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. As you said, like you, you won't have that light bulb moment straight away. It is, it is a process of, you know, you, you've had that acknowledgement process, but now it's actually putting things together that will actually help you and benefit you in your healing process. Uh, and then it- honestly, until I came out fully with my story, I, it was still like a millstone hanging around my neck. I still thought that if I ever, if anybody ever found out about this, that it would be a black mark on me and it would be terrible. And I'd be looked at like some kind of pariah and like it would, I'd be an outcast. And I, I didn't ever mean to come out with this as some kind of statement. It was, my wife and I and my daughter, my oldest, we were we were watching the Parkland massacre. I got enraged watching the, the media after that. They went and were questioning the victims right after the shooting, directly coming out of the building, asking, what do you feel like and how did that feel? And to me, that was the most depersonalizing thing I've ever seen, the commodification of the victims. And, and looking at the entirety of the tragedy, not that, oh my God, kids just got shot, but hey, someone just did something newsworthy. Let's go talk to the victims. Maybe they can give us a story. Again, it's, it's kind of like what, what, what will create clout for that social media platform and, and, from, and then what will make a title. And as you said, they will only focus on the shooting itself, whether or not there'd be deaths, who was injured, as opposed to the treatment, the, the treatment that these these shooters have had experienced and they they were immediately within the first couple of minutes of of these questions they were immediately forming a character for the shooter and and trying to fit like ticking off their mental boxes of what a school shooter is and ding 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 well there's a school shooter this 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 and this and i just have to say flat out if you have an idea of what a school shooter can be you're that's a problem that right there fundamentally is an issue because the, the, the pain underneath is the underlying problem. The, the face covering, if we only pay attention to angry white kid in trench coat instead of kid going through massive amounts of terrible pain, then you're never going to fix the actual issue. We never take into account the living conditions of, of this child, what they're internalizing, all that sort of stuff. It, it's just, again, what will make a headline and what will what will create an impact and and bring more viewership to the to the media platform? 
and and not and and by no means as is this to 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 minimize or to apologize be apologetic no not at all not at all in any means but let's let's take let's take an average school shooter seems to be in the mid teens so we're looking at what four or five years of personality that, yep. that we've actually been able to to accomplish before before this has happened where they've been able to be a person for less than half a decade before this before this explosion of violence and then when when the media then looks at it well he was consuming all this social media and he was in the, why was he doing all of these things and why was he in this subgroup and and what was who's the person underneath the label the same way that when we look at like i mentioned earlier if we look at who's the guy in the red hat you know Who's who's the Muslim in the burqa? If instead of seeing the, the the label, who's the homeless guy in the in the dirty coat? Who's the guy that that's who's the actual person mm-hmm. under the picture that you see? We need to be asking the question of why, as opposed to the just going straight to the point of impact of what had resulted. It, it, it's it's just so vital because, as you said, we don't know what they're experiencing and what they've gone through. Again, it doesn't take away what the aftermath. What, what was what was of the aftermath but it is so important as you said because statistically a lot of the school shootings are uh, you know in their teens or early 20s and it's an ongoing pattern and we've got to really think about it is it because the impact of social media the upbringing what is it and we really need to really need to delve into these questions and, f- and from the adults perspective that the adults on the they try to fix it by doing things like hardening the schools and increasing school security by pointing out the, the dangerous kid in the class. And like I said in my TED talk, what was what's that going to do to the depressed kid who is already struggling, trying to find anybody who's going to listen to him. And he can't reach out to his friends because they're, they're scared of him. And now he can't reach out to a counselor because one wrong word to a counselor. And now it's going to bring the fucking FBI to his door. And mm. so now he just gets pushed into that subgroup that is, oh yeah, well, well, we'll protect you. We'll be okay. We'll keep it all hidden. In fact, we'll make it a code. Instead of talking about killing people, we'll talk about Pepe the Frog instead. By attempting to fix the problem as, as non-attentive administrators and adults, we then push them into the subgroups that we're trying to prevent in the first place. Yeah. We're kind of like putting them to one side, just putting them in a corner and going, all right, he's here Here are certain people we can talk to. They'll they'll bring up all these preventatives. We'll, we'll hide the problem. We'll hide the issue. We won't acknowledge you. I'll acknowledge the stuff you've been through and and we'll just increase the school security. And that's why I personally, when I do, when I talk about things, that there's two particular phrases that I try to avoid and which we haven't talked about in this, thankfully, um, has been, gun control and mental health. If you notice, those two phrases, when they're brought up in conversation as subjects, they both have the same effect, but from diametrically opposed ends. Mm. So you bring up gun control and it gets lost in the minutia of the detail. Is this an assault weapon? Is that a stock? Is that a, is that a, how many in that clip? And this weapon is not this kind of weapon. And you get lost in the, in, in the details and the minutia and you can completely lose topic, lose sight of the topic. Mental health, you have the opposite end where you can't really map wrap your hands around it. It's this big gray amorphous blob and you don't really have any fine understanding of what that really means. And so it just kind of fuzzes out in the conversation. When those become the subject of the topic or the, the topic of the conversation, it, you tend to end up with this white noise where you have lost the actual basis of what you're talking about. So yeah. instead, I talk about that 
I was a depressed kid in a horrible situation, trying to find sanity in an insane world, trying to scramble for my own mental safety when, and finding any bit of semblance of happiness that I could. Mm. Now, I'm interested to know as well is how did you actually manage to get on TED Talks and, and then build up the courage to actually share your story? Well, after I came out with my, after I, uh, we were walking, watching the Parkland massacre, I literally went into the bathroom and wrote a Facebook post sitting on the toilet. And um, (laughs) when I came out of the the bathroom, my family had read it and they were in tears. And that was the initial one about how I was almost a school shooter was in that first Facebook post. By the next morning that went Facebook viral. So that had like 20,000 likes and views, like just went a little kind of crazy. And so my wife was said, Hey, you might want to send that to the local news reporter here, Kyle Clark. And so I sent it to him as a message. And the very next day they had sent a camera crew to my house to have wow. that. And so that video for the, my local news got 15 million views in two days. Holy. And immediately I got hit with, Messages from all over the planet, like diaries from all over the world started hitting me because it wasn't just people messaging me about, hey, that's a cool story. It was, hey, that's a cool story. And here's everything that ever happened to me. So I got literally tens of thousands of messages from all over the planet, from every country you could think of, Australia, New Zealand, Pakistan, Iran, um, every state, Canada, Mexico, uh, Argentina, Brazil, um, every one of the Norwegian countries, every one of the um, all over Eastern Europe and Western Europe, Russia, China, everywhere, and all of them having the same base message, which was that that sense of lack of belonging. I got I got messages from a kid in Pakistan and a kid in Brooklyn, and they were exactly the same. It's incredible, Aaron, because it's 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 like as if you've become a voice for millions of people around the world, and it it really just takes that one person just to get that cog rolling. And then through that, then people become a bit more comfortable, can kind of find that sense of relatability and then can start to open up. It blows me away. And then so after that, uh, one of the people that followed me just was like, hey, there's going to be a TED Talk nearby. You should apply. And so I did. I just went and applied. And they it was a simple interview process. They we talked and right away the guy was like, so you already pretty much know what you're going to say. I'm like, <laughs> this is kind of funny. So they have the, the meetings where we all sit around in the very first meeting. They were like 15 people to get ready to do the TED talk. And yeah, yeah, they're yeah. all sitting around in the table talking about, okay, so let's all say hi to everybody. And we're going to go around and talk about it. And so let's start. Aaron, what, let's start with you. What, what are you going to do? And <laughs> literally, I was the very first one to go. I stood up, gave my, ta- gave my speech. It was like four sentences different from the final TED talk. I stopped and the whole room was in tears. And one lady was like, I'm not following him. <laughs> and, that, and that was it. I want to mention this because I think that there might be some people that might can maybe can have a similar feeling. If, if you are, if you've went through any kind of hell, like I went through, cause I am not another thing to remember about my story. I might be rare talking about it. I am not rare living it. Yeah, exactly. Just because I'm rare talking about it, no one else talks about this stuff, doesn't mean I'm the only one that went through it. Uh, I am not at all a, a rare person go, having gone through this kind of shit and gone through this kind of hell. Lots of people go through this. And you've got a Facebook page that you put together as well called You Are Not Alone. 
Yeah, yeah, you are not alone. And it's um, that's entirely based on giving people this place where they can talk about it and, and, and open up about these things. And, and that has been, that group alone has prevented over 20 suicides. That is amazing. And prevented three school shootings. And how does that make you feel knowing that you've created this and you've had such a positive impact? I, I was just the, the, the catalyst. I was yeah. not. The, the, this was the group doing it with its own self-perpetuating positivity. I, 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 I have a small part, but I am not. I, it is not me doing it. It's the, this is a group effort. Somehow, I managed to find a way to use my darkest point in my life to help even one person not go down that same path. And that is so rewarding to me Incredible. And, and so worth it that I'll keep on doing it forever. And at the same time, I also lost almost 300 pounds. I went from almost 500 pounds to right now about 250 pounds. Well, congratulations. So it's kind of like as you're helping other people, you're, you're sort of helping yourself along the way as well. And you do as, as you help other people, as you will help yourself. If you give that love to the people who feel you feel deserve it the least, you will feel that love yourself. It will come back to you and you, and you will feel you will that, that sense of belonging and personhood that you're giving to them will also return to you because in order to give someone to make someone part of a group, you have to give, be part of that group. Exactly. Now as a bit of a takeaway message for the listeners, Aaron, just wanted to ask you this question before we wrap this episode up. That, you know, we all go through our own metaphorical bumps and hurdles throughout our life. How can you break that cycle of negativity and allow yourself to make the change and also allow yourself to speak up to loved ones and seek professional help if necessary? The biggest thing that I can say is the only constant in life is change. The only thing that's absolutely certain is that tomorrow is going to be different than today. It might not be better. It might not be worse, but it will be different. And we can either choose to resist those changes and get worn down like the sands on a beach and get turned into little tiny pebbles and all the rocks that make us up get just destroyed. Or we can adapt with those changes and move like the water of that ocean instead and move and change and shift because at the base of it, all we really are is change. So keep on going and tomorrow will be different than today. But one foot in front of the other and keep on walking. That's the biggest tip I can give. Never be afraid to talk even if you have 10 people telling you to stop talking and you should, you should be quiet, you'll have one person who listened to you who will probably talk because you did. The more you talk, the more other people will be inspired to follow you to talk as well. Thank you so much for taking up your time, Aaron. I know you've got a bit of a busy schedule, but I just think you're an incredibly inspirational person for what you've gone through. As you said, you've had such a positive impact on so many people around the world and understandably because you're an incredible person, you're a genuine guy and you just want to make a difference and a positive impact so thank you so much and, and from me i'm really proud of you for what you've been through and the person you've become today well thank you very, very much i i'm very humbled by your comments I, I i appreciate that very much i'm just a regular guy trying to speak out so anybody else that can do the same thing and for those that may be wanting to to get into contact with you what would be the best way of doing that aaron well, you can find me on Facebook. My group, like you said, is You Are Not Alone. It's all one word. You Are Not Alone. You can find me on Twitter. That's at StarkDad1313. 
Yeah, Facebook and Twitter. You can also email me at AaronStarkAuthor at gmail.com. Uh, I'm open to speeches or talks or anything. I'm also an open book if anybody just wants to ask questions. So, guys, this has been Season 3, Episode 19 of Couch in the Mind, Clearing the Mind, One Couch Talk at a Time. And on today's episode, we just went over the topic of breaking the cycle. Joining me in conversation today was Aaron Stark. If you guys enjoyed it, if you want more content, just reach out to me on www.couchinthemind.com. Enjoy the rest of the week, and I'll speak to you guys soon. If you guys enjoyed this episode, and you're after more Couch in the Mind content, feel free to check us out on Spotify, Instagram, TikTok, and many other audio platforms. And as always, guys, if you need anything, feel free to message me on the Catch in the Mind Facebook page. Thanks again for tuning in.